Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Kroll Bennett. And we are obsessed with flipping puberty positive. Puberty is a stage of life best described as a roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts. It happens to literally every human being on earth. And it shouldn't be cringy. It should feel, you know, pretty comfortable. Which is why we started this podcast and a newsletter and why we film slightly ridiculous but informative social media videos. It's why we have a brand that makes clothes that literally feel so comfortable and why we write books too. Our latest is This Is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained. We have built a universe of puberty positivity and it all started with this podcast. We are so happy that you're here. So Cara, we like to go positive, right? We like to be empowering and optimistic and not just fall prey to the fear mongering around sex and intimacy. That was the version of sex education that you and I grew up with in our generation, right? We were growing up in the age of the AIDS epidemic And there was good reason why our sex education spent a lot of time focused on that, but it didn't really spend a lot of time focused on much of anything else. So we're trying to change that. And also people need to know what STIs and STDs are, sexually transmitted infections and sexually transmitted diseases are, how they can be infected, how they can be diagnosed, how they can be treated, and how they can be prevented. And it's not a super fun topic, but it is super important. And things have changed a lot, actually, since we were kids. So where do you want to start? 
I'd like to start with the very, very big picture, which is this is not a fear mongering episode. This is not an episode to make people feel afraid of the consequences of having sex, even though when STIs and STDs are taught in school, that's exactly how the information is delivered. So we're going to give a lot of information about different infections and diagnosing them and treating them. But this is not to say that we are being fear mongers. We're just being straight up information advocates. When people are sexually involved, here is one potential consequence of that interaction. And keeping the lens pulled way back, we also have to remind people that we are not just talking about one type of sex. So when we talk about sexual activity, we really are meaning that there is exchange of bodily fluids. That might be saliva, that might be blood, that might be semen. It's the exchange of bodily fluids that is the transport medium for an STI. So those are our two sort of big picture comments. We're not fear-mongering and don't forget about all types of sex, vaginal, anal, oral, as we talk about this whole topic. Vanessa, let's then dive into some basic definitions, right? Because today's kids know the difference between an STI and an STD. This is how it is taught. But today's parents and teachers and coaches and mentors might not. Do you want to take a stab at the difference between an STI and an STD? Um, <laughs> no. That's a really. no with this morning. <laughs> okay. Can I take a stab at explaining it to you and see what you think of this explanation? Yes. I think that's a great idea. Okay. Here we go. An STI is a sexually transmitted infection. An STD is a sexually transmitted disease. An infection means a person has a bacteria or a virus or a fungus somewhere in or on their body growing. You're infected. It's cohabitating with your body. A disease means that infection is causing symptoms. So everyone who has a disease of some sort, X disease, has the infection that causes that disease if the disease is a result of an infection. Everyone who has a cold sore from a herpes virus has herpes virus. So everyone with a certain STD also has that STI. But if you have an STI, you don't necessarily have an STD. You can have the bacteria or virus or fungus in or on your body and have no idea because you have no symptoms. And in the age of COVID, asymptomatic infection became a, a really commonly talked about thing. People understood asymptomatic infections in a way they never did before because it was an issue. So STI, sexually transmitted infection, you've got the bug, you may or may not know it. STD, symptomatic disease. So one of the things that we have noticed, and this is anecdotal and it's based on research done by the CDC and reported in things like the Youth Risk Behavior Survey and other ancillary-related national surveys and reports about American teenagers and their sexual behavior, 
is that, and people freak out when we tell them this, that the use of condoms by American teenagers, the rates of condom use are down. And not just down by a point or two, down significantly. So for those of us who grew up in the era of don't come within 10 feet of somebody unless the person with the penis has a condom on that penis, we'll find that extremely shocking because we were absolutely terrified of HIV and AIDS. So Car, can we talk for a minute about why condom use is so important and why we have the companion data of rising rates of STIs and STDs in this country? Yeah. So there are lots of ways to prevent a pregnancy during sex, but there are very few ways to protect against the transmission of STIs. The surest way to prevent is to not come into contact. So um, when people talk about abstinence teaching, we are believers, the data shows that it is totally appropriate for abstinence to be part of sex education teaching. The choice to not have sex protects people against both infection and pregnancy. Uh, That's great. It's just one part of the teaching, right? So just clarity there that that is one way to prevent the spread of infection. Really, the only other way is a physical barrier. That's really all we figured out in science up until now. And the only effective physical barrier is a condom or a version of a condom. It can be a penile condom, a vaginal condom, it can be a condom made of latex is the most common, but there are other non-latex materials that condoms are made of. But it's like, it's basically like putting up a gigantic wall and that wall keeps the infection out. So when you ask what the connection is, the connection is very obvious, right? As condom use goes down, the spread of infection goes up because presumably people are still having the same amount of sex. And they, you know, yes, numbers change a little bit here and there and trends change a little bit here and there. But net net, overall, people are still having sex all over the world in all kinds of ways. And so if your condom use drops, your infection spread rises. Can you talk for a minute about the trend towards pubic hair removal of in people of all genders and whether that can contribute to the spread of STIs as well? Yeah, I know we talk a lot about pubic hair removal on this podcast, but for good reason, there are some health consequences to doing that. So it's a trend, it's a thing, it's been around for a long time and it continues to be extraordinarily popular among younger adults. So teens, 20-somethings, 30-something. I mean, there are people, there are probably 80-year-olds out there who subscribe to the trend and that's great. And You do you. However, the issue with pubic hair being removed is pubic hair provides, it's not the greatest barrier, right? I mean, it's no wall, but it's a pretty permeable wall. It's it's really, yeah. if If you're a wall builder, do not build it with pubic hair. But pubic hair does provide one layer of protection and defense, especially for the skin. So it's less about 
the actual vaginal canal or the actual penis, neither of which are covered with hair. It's really about guarding the entry and preventing small little breaks in the skin that can then allow for bacteria or viruses or funguses to enter the bloodstream that way. So if you imagine, think about pubic hair being there, there's skin on skin friction, the pubic hair is sort of a buffer against skin breakage. And even if the skin breaks, the pubic hair kind of creates a little bit of a maze or a, a an extra layer of insulation against that infection getting into the other person's skin, broken skin, and then getting into their bloodstream. When the pubic hair is gone, just the defenses are down a little bit. It's like, you know, it's it's sort of like the garage door is open and come on in, right? And it's not that it will, and it's not that it is, you know, this is not the most common mechanism of transmission of sexually transmitted infection. In fact, it is nowhere near the most common mechanism. Like the most common mechanism is when you have mucosal linings, those are tissue linings on the inside of the body or that are covered with mucus. You know, the inside of your mouth is a mucosa, right? So the inside of the vagina has mucosa and those mucosal linings are just ripe with very small blood vessels. And it's very easy for those to have just little nicks and tears and bleeding and for infections to get in that way. Likewise, the skin on the penis, um, while it's not mucosal, it receives friction in a very direct way, whether it's during masturbation or any kind of sex. And that skin can have little microscopic tears in it. I mean, that that's a far, far, far more common way of getting an STI than, you know, rubbing two pubises together that don't have hair. Okay. So I want to be super clear. And can you talk a little bit about anal sex and whether it has like particularly different risks to people engaging in it with respect to to transmission and those kinds of tears? Yeah, I mean, the inside of the anus, the rectum is right inside the anus. It's a mucosal lining as well. So lots of blood vessels. And, you know, by design, I think about the whole job of the anus is to make sure that um, you can evacuate your waste and all that. And and so it is a sphincter. It is held in a tight position. It has a thick mucosal lining. And all of that sets the body up for little tears when the anus is penetrated. There's no judgment here. Like this is not to say this is not the right way for people to have sex or anything. It's just, just the matter of fact that when a part of the body that is tighter or more constricted is penetrated by something that causes it to stretch, the skin or tissue might stretch and be accommodating or it might tear a little bit. And then if there's an infection there, that infection can get in. I do think, you know, the the subtext of your question to me also sounds like you're wondering about the anal sex in porn um, in particular, where we because you and I talk about this a lot, especially on the road, parents are asking us about this nonstop and this sort of filmography of violent, aggressive sex in porn, which includes violent, aggressive anal sex. And when that type of anal sex occurs where there's aggression, well, you can only imagine that there's more trauma. There's more local trauma. There's more cutting. There's more bleeding. And so, you know, like everything else, 
in all of medicine and all of healthcare. We can talk about gradations of how things go and there's, you know, mild, moderate and severe in pretty much everything. And this is true in sex as well, penetrative sex, whether it's vaginal, oral, anal. If it's violent and aggressive, it tends to be associated with more nicking and bleeding. And then if there's an infection, the infection will be passed. I should also add, if it's violent and aggressive, not always, but often there's no condom, right? So an aggressor is probably not going to be like, hold up, let me put on a condom first before I commit this act of aggressive assault. And so that's the other layer of risk that is introduced. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is factors ready to eat meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. (laughs) And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, magnesium breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, magnesium breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie Horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. 
Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal, and even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter, and fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. So for those of you listening and feeling pretty overwhelmed and wondering how the hell you're going to talk about this. I hope the why of why you should talk about this with your teens and young adults has become clear. It's really, really about health and safety. Also the why of why we talk about things like porn with kids and its role in their understanding of sexual behavior is really important the why of conversations about consent, enthusiastic consent, mutual respect is really important. The conversations about the science behind STIs and STDs, understanding what happens in the body, how different body parts work and react. We have a super huge chapter in This Is So Awkward about this because there's a lot of ground to cover. And there's one more why that we need to address before we get into some specifics. And that's the why does it matter if you even get an infection or get a disease? And the answer is it's different for all of these infections, but several of these can lead to serious medical issues, including future complications with pregnancy and or really significant illness and shortened lifespan. So yes, we promise we're not fear-mongering. On the other hand, like let's get realistic. You get into a car, you drive a car, you put on your seatbelt, you do all of these things to make sure you follow a speed limit, right? You stop at a red light. Like these are all things to keep you safe when you're doing something that is potentially dangerous. That is all we are saying with sex and STIs and STDs here is there are ways to have sex that just implement safety measures along the way because the consequence of driving recklessly is a car crash and the consequence of having sex recklessly can be some very significant health outcomes. Let's talk for a second about some of the innovations just in our lifetime and our very short and youthful lifetimes. Um, and I wanna, I wanna bring it up by telling a story which we also tell in the book, which is related to the HPV vaccine. And when I took my oldest kid to the doctor to get his first shot of the HPV vaccine, he was very resistant because he really doesn't like shots. I have two kids who don't care about shots and two kids who really don't like shots. He's one who doesn't like it. And 
I was debating, like, how do I convince him that it's important? And this is an instance where it's so wonderful to have a trusted healthcare provider. (laughs) So who was about to give the shot. So I turned to his doctor and I said, hey, can you explain to him why it's important that he gets the HPV vaccine? And in my mind, I'm like, you know, thinking about cancer and down the road and future partners. And the doctor looked at him and said, hey, dude, you don't want warts on your penis, do you? And he's like, oh, no. And he goes, great. And he just gives him the shot. And then, and this is important for people to know, he then was like, oh my God, that really hurt. And I, and of course, me being the totally fallible human being that I am, I looked at him, I was like, oh, f- shut up. Like, it doesn't hurt that much. Get over it. And then he leaves the room to go to the bathroom and the doctor looked at me and he goes, actually, those ones hurt a lot. Like they're known to hurt. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. So there's two parts of the story there. And Car, I want to address both of them. One is how does the HPV vaccine actually work? And then two, we'll move into how do we talk to our kids about all of the different ways we prevent and deal with and treat STIs and STDs? So I want to start actually by addressing one thing that your doctor did, because I've read that story many times and there's a sweetness to it, but I want to just make a plea to anyone in healthcare who's listening and any adult who walks a kid into an office where there's a healthcare provider, vaccines are the perfect opportunity to get in front of a conversation. So Usually in the dream scenario where there's nothing but time in an office, which (laughs) does not happen, (laughs) before you give a shot, you actually don't need the parent to prompt you. You have the opportunity to say to a kid, let me tell you why I'm giving you this shot. The kid doesn't always hear it. The parent doesn't always hear it. But it's really, if there is any opportunity to explain any vaccine at any point, it's the HPV vaccine and it's a conversation about sex. So to the adults who are listening, this may be the perfect opportunity to excuse yourself from the room if your kid is not willing to engage in that conversation with you listening. That may be the case. And some physicians, you know, they sniff that out and they wait on that conversation, maybe because a kid will be embarrassed, but maybe because a kid won't be safe. You know, there are times when Physicians actually can't have that conversation with a certain adult in the room because they are very concerned that there's something else going on and that's a bigger thing. But I just want to make the point that the HPV vaccine in particular is the best opportunity for pediatricians and healthcare providers to begin a conversation about the power and positivity of safe sex. So there you go. Okay, so... Let's talk a little bit about HPV vaccine because I think this one in particular has gotten terrible, terrible press. My personal beef with HPV vaccine is not what anyone else seems to care about. When I was at um, my residency training at UCSF, they were actually running the first HPV studies. And in an effort to get HPV to market quickly, they limited the study population. They did teen and young 20-something females. So it was really marketed initially as a vaccine for people with 2X chromosomes. And that was, you know, to get the studies done quickly and to get it to market. And there was, yeah, you could argue, good, let's get half the population vaccinated quickly, and then we can work on studies for the other half. But the reality is that the message 
was sent early on and became somewhat indelible. Guys don't need this vaccine. That is wrong. Everyone needs this vaccine in order to protect against human papillomavirus, the one virus that is known to cause penile and cervical cancer in significant numbers. And so, yes, your pediatrician was right to say, do you want warts on your penis? Another question could have been, do you want cancer? on your penis. Um, Although I think warts is the better one to say to teenagers because it's much more here and now. That is why we tend to advocate for HPV vaccine. The way that the vaccine works is just like any other vaccine, right? So it is a vaccine that helps build antibodies against a virus. There are several different types of HPV vaccine at this point. Gardasil, Gardasil 9, and Cervarix. Gardasil was the first one, and the other two iterations cover a wider range or a different range of types of HPV. There are subtypes of this virus. Two of them in particular, 16 and 18, cause the vast majority of cervical cancers. And so um, those are covered in all of these vaccines, um, but other vaccine types cover other HPV strains. So I think this one, it's fair for people to ask all these questions. It's correct. It's right. It's hard for adults to see 12 and 13 and 14 year olds get a vaccine that is protecting them against something that will happen when they become sexually active. That feels like it's really far away. And is that appropriate? The answer is if you have a really close relationship with a physician and you will show up there for every annual visit and you will get your vaccines on time, you can push a little bit if a kid's not sexually active at all. But I wouldn't push past 14 because once you hit 15, you have to get three doses instead of two doses. So it'd be nice to get in the two dose series. But, you know, we give them at 12 and 13 because they work and because the kids are there. And there is an argument to capturing your audience when your audience is there and they show up and it will cover them for many, many, many years. And that assumes we know when our kids are become sexually active. I mean, Correct. the percentage of caregivers who actually know when their kids become sexually active is tiny. Correct. Or at least they don't find out because they're having open, honest, reflective conversations with their kids. So um, there's no benefit to assuming you're going to know and then not know and not get your kid the vaccine in time. Before we go to the biggies, you know, like chlamydia and syphilis and gonorrhea, can you talk about herpes in terms of like, is there prevention? Is there treatment? Are there urban myths around herpes and how and when it can be transmitted between people? Oh my gosh, people have so much to say about herpes. I think because it's the most visible of the STDs um, and it's visible in the form of cold sores and those cold sores can be on the penis, on the labia or around mouth, right? And actually you can get herpes sores all over the body. There are lots and lots and lots of kinds of herpes in the world. The herpes that we are talking about in the STD world is herpes simplex virus, HSV, Type 1 and type 2 are the two types that are sexually transmitted. In the olden days, like when I was in high school, the teaching was HSV1 was above the waist and HSV2 was below the waist. 
And uh, that is not true at all. And you can imagine why that is not true, right? All you need is oral sex to mix up the HSV1 and HSV2 types. So there's lots of HSV1 and HSV2 around. I don't think people realize the staggering numbers here. So Vanessa, for those who are watching on YouTube, I'm holding up <laughs> our book. Um, I'm on page 250. And for um, those of you who have the book on Audible, you can just really enjoy Cara reading all of this wonderful oh, yeah. information. <laughs> oh, yeah. So just, you know, as I said, there are lots and lots of different types of of herpes viruses. Um, and as we mentioned in the book, including the herpes virus that causes chickenpox, which is varicella zoster, and the herpes virus that causes mono, Epstein-Barr virus. So those are both in the family. But the STD versions or STI versions of herpes are HSV-1 and HSV-2. HSV-1, are you ready for it, Vanessa? I'm so half, ready. Half of the world has HSV-1. Some studies say two out of every three people. I mean, that's staggering. HSV-2, not as popular. Um, only about 500 million people have HSV-2. But these, like, we should not freak out about these because these are viruses that coexist in and on a lot of our bodies. That said, people can get sick with these viruses. Little babies, newborns can get very, very sick. So there are precautions taken around delivery. Vaginal delivery is a moment when the virus can get passed from mother to child. So there are lots of precautions taken around that. But common, Vanessa, like, I, I don't know how much, I, I don't know anything else that has a frequency of between half and two thirds that I can think of. I just, those numbers are staggering. So let's, let's take the stigma off of herpes virus, shall we? Yes. So we've, we've done herpes, we've done HPV, we would be remiss, although it's not the focus of this conversation, if we didn't talk about HIV and AIDS, I will point people to our book where we speak in depth about the evolution of sex education as it relates to HIV and AIDS and the terrible epidemic that was faced in this country and the evolution in terms of the treatability and the healthcare around HIV and AIDS. So we are not going to spend a lot of time on it. People can read that chapter in the book. But Cara, if you could just put it within the context of this conversation, that would be great. HIV, yeah, the context is today, miraculously, thanks to incredible science, people live with HIV infection. When we were teenagers and 20-somethings, people generally died from their HIV infection. And so even though there are incredible, incredible shifts in the treatment of HIV, everyone I know would argue, people with HIV and people without would argue, is probably better to live a life without, not have to manage all the medications, et cetera, et cetera. There are phenomenal approaches to HIV prevention beyond condom use that include something called PrEP, which is a prophylactic medication. If you think you've been exposed, we encourage you to read about that and understand it because this is a very, very important piece of the puzzle. But HIV awareness should be greater than it is. This has slipped because it's treatable at this point and you can live with your HIV. I think the urgency has slipped down very low on the totem pole of STI and STD conversations. 
Right. So we're thrilled at the decrease in stigmatization of people who live with HIV and the incredible treatment now available. But that does not mean we should not be educating kids and encouraging kids. And now we're going to get to the other biggies to prevent transmission and to practice sex safely. Let's let's talk for a second about syphilis. I think this is let's let's talk syphilis. Oh my gosh, my daughter made in her high school science class, she had to make a board game about the reproductive system. And there was, I, I think the game pieces were STIs. There was something I can't She writes remember. about it in the book and it's it so was, good. It was so funny, this board game. It was hysterical. But what she learned there was something that had been hammered into us in medical school, which is syphilis is the great pretender. It can be completely asymptomatic or it can look like anything. It can, I mean, it just has such a diverse set of symptoms that go along with it. Syphilis is treatable, is easily treatable, but you have to diagnose this to treat it. And in order for it to be diagnosed, someone has to make their way to a healthcare provider. And we're not going to have that conversation about how hard it is to access healthcare providers right now for many, many people in this country. But suffice it to say, I'm taking a deep exhale there and having a moment of sadness there that it is so hard. The data on syphilis is stunning. So in this, in all of the work that we do in our book and our podcast, in our curriculum, we try to find the most recent research Those of you who are regular listeners may be aware that most of the recent research we quote now is 2021 data. That's because things lag by a couple of years. It's a little hard to collect the data, turn the data around and write about it quickly. So there are all these headlines out about syphilis and they reflect data that was collected between 2020 and 2021, but they show massive surges in syphilis. So syphilis cases between 20 20 and 2021 rose 32%. This is the highest number of cases in 70 years. And when we look at congenital syphilis, which is syphilis that is passed from mother to baby in the womb, not during delivery like herpes, but during the pregnancy, congenital syphilis has also risen 32%. These numbers are stunning. The babies who are born with congenital syphilis, if they survive the pregnancy, are very, very ill. People who get syphilis and are left undiagnosed as adults can get very, very ill. So this was an infection that I actually thought was going to be gone. I'm so surprised we're talking about it right now. This was supposed to be like smallpox, like look in the rear view mirror and it's gone. No, syphilis is very much a part of the STI and STD story. And as a reminder to people listening, if people use a barrier during the exchange of fluids, right? They will not transmit syphilis to each other. So if a condom is used correctly and disposed of correctly, that will prevent the transmission of syphilis. Can we talk about gonorrhea and chlamydia? Well, we can. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's so much to say. So I'm back in our book, page 248. Chlamydia, page 249, gonorrhea, they travel together alphabetically and they travel together as infections, actually. Chlamydia is the most common STD. 
So it's the most common infection in the US. It's the most common infection that causes symptoms in this country. And don't be fooled by its pretty name. Oh, yeah. (laughs) My God, I've never thought of it as having a pretty name. Sorry, anyone. What are you going to name your daughter? Chlamydia. Okay, so if you are looking at people who have chlamydia, about a quarter of all females who are infected have symptoms and about half of all males, which is so interesting because males don't tend to acknowledge their symptoms as quickly or as readily as females. But with chlamydia, they do. What are the symptoms? Painful urination, vaginal discharge or atypical bleeding, epididymitis, which is doubled over screaming pain coming from the testicle. The epididymis is inflamed and infected. Pharyngitis, sore throat, chlamydia in the throat. See, this is why we can't just talk about one kind of sex. Chlamydia is an incredibly common cause of a sore throat. And also, wait for it, conjunctivitis, infection of the eye. Vanessa's face just (laughs) fell. She's like, she's trying to figure out those mechanics. Yes, Vanessa, those are the mechanics. Yes, okay. Okay. That's the type of sex we did not include in our four types of sex. <laughs> Penile eyeball sex? <laughs> Co- correct. That is not what we covered. In um, and the CDC estimates that one in 20 sexually active young women between the ages of 14 and 24 has chlamydia. And that two thirds of new chlamydial infections occur among young people aged 15 to 24. Totally. Yeah. So again, yeah, this is why it is critically important to have conversations with kids about how to be safe when they are having all different kinds of sex. Yep. And I'll just you know, round it out with gonorrhea. Uh, <laughs> that's part. Um, I'm just going to read you a sentence from the book. Yes, you read that right. Sometimes people get two STIs for the price of one. That oh would be gonorrhea. gonorrhea. That's like the most Cara line ever. Ever. <laughs> um, so gonorrhea, less commonly diagnosed, but can look a lot like chlamydia, vaginal discharge, vaginal bleeding, pain, swelling of one testicle, and conjunctivitis. So we have it again. So the beautiful thing about chlamydia and gonorrhea is that now it's really easy to diagnose these. Often we will see pediatricians, family doctors, internists checking the urine for these infections. So it used to be you had to have a swab stuck up you. Now a lot of doctor's offices have the ability to check these by a urine pee test, which is great. Great, great, great. Because these are treatable. So for those of you who imagine or suspect that your kid is sexually active, for those of you who've had a kid leave home, but is still coming home for their annual physical, this is a moment, like Cara said, the HPV vaccine is a moment to have a conversation about sex. This is another moment to have a conversation with a kid or ask your healthcare provider to have a conversation with your kid about their sexual activity and to do a full panel testing for all of these infections. That's right. 
And I, I do not pretend that is an easy conversation to have, but it doesn't have to be a 45 minute conversation. It can be quick. It can be brief. And this is one where another trusted adult is a great person to have at least part of the conversation. So some people have kids coming home for Thanksgiving or winter break, and they might be going to see their healthcare provider. You don't have to wait till the end of the year. You could do it halfway through the year. Again, if you imagine that you have a kid who's been pretty active over the course of the last few or several months. So, Car, I want to spend the last couple of minutes just, again, in the book, we have a zillion ways to get into these conversations. But I don't want to leave people without a couple of suggestions on how to begin a conversation about STIs, STDs, and all of the accompanying conversations. Do you want to start with one suggestion? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the kid and it depends on the adult. But sometimes the best way in is just very direct and very straightforward. Hey, I was listening to this podcast and I was reminded that you need to know about sexually transmitted infections. We haven't talked about this in a long time. This is one fact I learned, which was kind of crazy. Fill in the blank fact. Do you have questions? Are there any things you've heard that seem crazy or seem scary or that you want to discuss? Or another way in, hey, I bought a box of condoms and I left them in the bathroom, under the sink, in a back corner. They are always there. You can always get them. The reason I'm doing this is because preventing sexually transmitted infections and diseases is really important to me. I really want to talk to you about sex and sexual activity, but it's also really important to me that you're safe. So just so you know, there's a box in there. I like how you are approaching this partially because it's not an interrogation, right? The temptation is to really want to find out what our kids are up to. And this is a situation where if we work really hard to find out what they're up to, we may cut short the conversation where we can give them some good information and just tell them what they need to know. So sometimes it's not a give and take. Sometimes it's car what you just did, which is like, all right, well, there's condoms. And by the way, there should be condoms no matter what gender kid you have living in your house, whether they have penises or vaginas, they should be able to take responsibility for safe sex. Kids who have uh, are on birth control or have IUDs to prevent pregnancy, those do not prevent STIs and STDs. People with all the physical equipment should know that while those things may prevent pregnancy, they do not prevent STIs and STDs. One way in that I like to use is the kind of hey, are people talking about like STIs? Do people talk about chlamydia? Because I heard that they're on the rise, but it doesn't seem like they're a big part of the conversation. The other conversation is like, I read that condom use is down amongst young people in America. And that is pretty wild to me because it's the only thing that protects you from lots of STIs and STDs and certain forms of sex. So I go kind of general with one or two pieces of information. I ask kind of what's in the air, what's being talked about, as opposed to straight arrow to my kid and what's going on with them. I've got one more that does not work in my house, but might work in yours. Hey, I just read this book 
There's a great chapter about all this information. You don't have to take it from me. Just here, read the chapter. Take it from these two wacky ladies who talk about puberty and sex all the time. And let me tell you why it works in other homes, but not in mine. Because my kids are like, you wrote that book. But if Vanessa was the only author on the book, they would totally read it. (laughs) And they'd just gobble it up. So I might like, white out my name, just, you know, cover it. Just with like on your cover. On but my cover. We've been talking to people for the last couple months. Our book is a great place to start. If you have older, this is a topic really for teens and young people. And there's tons of great scientific information and we are not fear mongering, but we are providing people with the information they need. So if you have the book at home, leave it out. Just and saying. <laughs> maybe just put a post-it note and in the, I think, what chapter is it? Is it chapter 17? I, I'm actually looking. It, it's the longest, second longest chapter in our book. The longest chapter is about sports specialization. But this is a very close second. It is chapter 17. And it covers all ding, forms ding, ding. of contraception, STIs and STDs. By the way, it does not cover sex because that got its own chapter. <laughs> also... We will do an episode with some young people that we know and trust to talk about their experiences, learning about dealing with STIs and STDs, because as ever, their perspective and their voices are super important in understanding this landscape. Cara, always a pleasure to talk about STIs and STDs with you. Always a pleasure. Vanessa, thank you. Godspeed. We absolutely love hearing your feedback and getting all your questions. So anytime you want to be in touch, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking for great puberty products like the Oom shorts or the Oom socks or the Oom bra, you get the theme there, go to myoomla.com. If you want more content, you love what we do on the Puberty Podcast and you want to have us come speak or learn more about our book or subscribe to our amazing newsletter, The Awkward Roller Coaster, go to orderofmagnitude.co. Remember, it's .co because we don't have enough money to buy .com. Yet. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.